Welcome to None of My Friends Like Comics. This is a podcast where a comic book enthusiast talks to a friend about a piece of work in the medium and we break it down to see if my friend, the first time reader, will pull it or drop it. I'm your host, Nick Poffenbarger, and my co-host slash first time reader today is Lance from the Comic Book Keepers podcast. How's it going, man? It's going great. I'm very excited to talk about the comic of uh, topic today. Yeah, yeah, me too, man. (laughs) For those of you who uh, don't know Comic Book Keepers, it's a truly fantastic show. I'm uh, I'm a frequent listener. And uh, why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us a bit about the show real quick, Lance? Sure. Uh, Me and my buddy Chris, we decided to fill our endless days of 2020 by creating a comic book podcast because we wanted to talk more about comics. And on our show, we like to do character deep dives. That's how it started. And then we realized it's so much preparation in doing that, doing it every single week. So we decided to add additional segments. So we have some like, what are you reading? episodes where we just talk about what we've been reading or we bring someone on to talk about it. We do creator interviews within the industry. A lot of fun creators have been coming through lately, so that's been very exciting. And then we we mix things up and do a, uh, a Crisis on Infinite Crossovers style episode where we actually take an inter-publisher crossover story and talk about that because I love the weird crossovers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, I've, I'm a massive crossover fan myself too but like a lot of the ones that you guys have covered i actually haven't read or or really knew a lot about so it's really insightful and i really like listening to those especially <laughs> oh, nice. where can people find your show and whatnot yeah uh, you can find us on all podcasting streaming platforms comic book keepers three words and you can find us on social media everywhere we're on social media it's at cbk cast there we go lance Welcome to None of My Friends Like Comics. Uh, it's a, uh, it's Happy been to be here. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's been a bit since I've actually had like a new friend on the show. But we do have a tradition, and uh, if it's your first time here, I have to ask what your experience with comic books is, um, leading up to the current day, at least. Yeah, uh, my comic book introduction didn't happen until after I saw the first Spider-Man film, the first Sam Raimi. Spider-Man film. Yeah. Uh, my, my family were not into comic books. Uh, we all grew up playing sports and doing like our own thing. And I was amazed after that first Sam Raimi film. And to the point where that Christmas I woke up and there was just a fat stack of a variety of Spider-Man comics because my parents didn't know what to get. So they literally went to a comic shop, said my kid likes Spider-Man and they just grabbed like random issues all over the place. But (laughs) I love them. I love looking at the art. I don't I actually didn't even read too many of them. I felt like that year I just stared at the cover art and the interiors and I was kind of obsessed just with the visuals of everything. And flash forward really to college and I wasn't reading anything. And then I had a roommate that introduced me to a variety of different comic storylines. He had a bunch of trade paperbacks and he handed me Old Man Logan. Oh, nice. And I was like, sure, sure, I'll check it out. And I loved it. I was obsessed. I was like, I I had no idea that comics could be like that, like story-wise, and immediately started to collect more. I went home for Christmas, one of the like one of the years of college, came back with all of my Spider-Man comics that I still had from that Christmas and went to a local comic shop where they traded me one for one of books that I wanted. And I actually ended up walking away with an X Factor run, including first cameo and first full appearance of Apocalypse. Oh, nice. Yeah. So early X Factor, like first X Factor. Yes. Uh, And it it kind of just snowballed from there. I started collecting single issues more. I started reading more trade paperbacks and it's stayed consistent since then. And that was back in like 2012, 2013. 
and my collection has since expanded exponentially. Yeah, I was just saying, that's that's interesting because it's, that just means that uh, timeline wise, we're pretty similar in the way that, or at least the time frame that we like really dove in. You know, like um, I because I remember like like two thousand nine uh was when I like got interested like really interested, you know, beyond like the stuff that I just had randomly as a kid. And I had like never been to a comic book store. I didn't even know there were any like locally, you know? And uh, <laughs> like, I remember though, like getting into modern comics right around that same time, like 2010, 2011, like right there. And then I started going to the store and have just been consistent ever since basically. So yeah, that's cool though, man. Yeah. Like, um, I, I find it funny too, that you're just talking about old man Logan. It's like, I feel like people our age, it's like, Mark Miller is like this benchmark that you have to go through <laughs> like to right. where it's like, oh, yeah, that's that. And then everyone's into modern comics right after they get exposed to his stuff. Like you got to be the angsty. You got to have your angsty Miller exactly, period yeah. in life. Everyone has it's that, like your that, emo phase, that, that Miller period. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So awesome, man. Well, um, so today uh, we are talking about a comic actually from that era a little bit before, but, um, uh, we're talking about Spider-Man noir from Marvel comics today. Uh, this book is written by David Hine and Fabrice Sapolsky is drawn and colored by Carmine DG and Domenico. I think I got that right. <laughs> um, Not a good name. <laughs> lettered by art monkey studios. And, uh, with some, uh, really great, I just wanted to mention some really great covers by Patrick Zercher. The, uh, four issue miniseries premiered with issue one in December of 2008 and concluded with issue four in March of 2009. Uh, here's a non-spoiler description. Spider-Man Noir is pretty much what it sounds like. It's a reimagining of Peter Parker's world through the lens of 1930s America. It's basically just a grittier, darker, and uh, it firmly fits the mold of classic noir stories. But, you know, it's Spider-Man. So this series was very successful and served as like a launching pad for a whole noir line of books that Marvel produced for a while around this time. They did like, you know, X-Men daredevil iron man luke cage wolverine etc this book uh, also got a direct sequel called eyes without a face from the same creative team and spider-man noir has gone on to be featured in other books like you know big ones like spider-verse um he was also famously voiced by nicholas cage in the film into the spider-verse which i really love but this uh this book definitely ain't that um <laughs> It's, no, it's not, not at all. Not Nicholas Cage, noir Spider-Man. But uh, so Lance, before uh, reading this book, uh, what was your experience like with Spider-Man noir? I've been hunting for these books for so long, I feel like at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I really enjoy the design of Spider-Man noir. I think it's a fantastic conceptualized idea. Yeah. I think Spider-Man works very much as a noir style character. And I, of course, so of course I wanted to read the book, but they are hard to find and to the point where I decided, oh, I'll just get the trade paperback. Nope. Pretty much just expense, as expensive as the single issues. So uh, I had to read this digitally. Yeah, it's rough, man. I mean, me, me and you were talking just through text message about Marvel's just general problem with not printing enough stuff. <laughs> I mean, when the Into the Spider-Verse movie came out, I was actually kind of surprised that they did a reprint sort of collection of this. It, you know, was like a, it was like one of those thicker, like ultimate trade paperbacks where it's like, I think it had this series plus the sequel and maybe the one from like 2019 or something. <laughs> like a, they, they oh, had wow. another one with a different creative team. And of course that uh, even just from a couple years ago is completely out of print and astronomically priced now <laughs> through third party sellers. So it's, it's like brutal out there. I, I have a local comic shop there or a local used bookstore that I go to. And this past weekend I was looking through it and 
on like the shelf kind of pushed out to the side you just saw from top down it said noir and i was like oh is this it have i finally found it but it was one of the other uh noir line oh books. really and i i yeah i was very sad i wanted spider-man noir. yeah no man I, yeah i mean no <laughs> no spoilers for my for my thoughts on this book quite yet but i will say the spider-man noir books are by far the best ones at least that I've read and I've read like a pretty good chunk of that line that like came out, um, uh, which I guess, like I said, for, for me, my experience with this book, or at least from when I first read it, it's kind of funny. This came out shortly before I really started to dive into comics, but I wasn't yet like going to comic book stores and in touch with like weekly releases and stuff. So like I actually first heard of Spider-Man Noir through Wikipedia diving. And then my first like real exposure to the character was the PS3 uh, version of uh, the game Spider-Man Shattered Dimensions. Nice. Um, which Spider-Man Noir is like one of the characters you played as and you do like stealth levels with him and stuff. And like, you know, I just thought he was super rad. And uh, I ended up going to a used bookstore local to here, found both of the hardcovers <laughs> and they were like eight bucks a piece or whatever. So I bought those and there was a bunch of the other noir books too, which I still have. I got like the Iron Man one and the first X-Men one. But yeah, I mean, it snatched up the Spider-Man ones and it's been a, a little gym on my shelf pretty much ever since. <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of, I agree with your sentiment in the fact that it's just like, there's something about like the design and just the idea of putting Peter Parker in that era with that kind of like aesthetic that just like, it really works for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> like I could, well. just one of those like primal things I can't really like explain, but like, yeah, I guess uh, we could just go ahead and jump on into the story section of the show. Um, This is where we recap the book beat for beat to kind of give context for our discussion. And that means uh, full spoilers ahead from here on out. So you've been warned. We begin our journey here and it tells us that it is January of 1933 in New York City. And we are outside of the Daily Bugle offices where we follow some cops who were called to the building by someone claiming to be Jane Oder Jameson. Uh, when they enter Jonah's office, though, however, they're greeted by the sight of a dead Jonah at his desk and Spider-Man is on the said desk brandishing a gun and uh, the cops assume the worst even though spider-man says it's not what it looks like uh, they start to go after him commenting how jonah was right about him all along and spider-man escapes using his webbing black webbing by the way because you know noir noir yeah <laughs> And uh, then we jump back three weeks to see how the heck we got here. And uh, got to get this out of the way early since uh, they hit us with the, you know, the cliffhanger at the beginning trope. Uh, but uh, let's just talk about what do you think about the suit design? I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it, it looks so <laughs> good. And we'll get into a little bit more about the suit later. Uh, but the concept of where the suit comes from is perfection. Yeah, it's so smart. I'm very intrigued to hear your thoughts on that as we as we go on to his his actual origin here after this little flashback. But yeah, I just have to say of the design, like it's one of those rare designs that you're like, once you see it and you see the name Spider-Man Noir, you're like, Oh, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> you know, like, it's just like that makes a thousand percent sense. And they couldn't have, like, designed it better, I think, you know, like, it's just like the coat and like the goggle eyes and stuff like it just it just works. Everything about it works. But yeah, I did want to get this out of the way as well. I don't mind the old uh, let's jump right into a cliffhanger trope. You know, <laughs> like I know that they have to sell books based on pitches and like, you know, you do like a five page thing. So it's like you got to captivate them to, to get it greenlit. But I feel like this scene may have had a little bit more weight if we just went linear the whole time. But that's just me, though. <laughs> I don't know. You know, sometimes I get I think tired of that trope a little. I don't know. 
right? I think they chose to do that more because that's what noir stories do a lot of the time. It it does so. Fit. They, they, yeah, they wanted you to kind of get the feel of the world they're going for and matching matching that setup that you see in so many more storylines where it's like the who done it, what's going on situation. That it, it fit very well with the feel they were going for, but I totally get what you're saying as far as <laughs> Because uh, the reality is, as we see Spider-Man in his suit at this point, but we don't even see him in the suit at all the rest of the ep- the first issue. So uh, that yeah. honestly might have been another reason why they chose to do it. That's what I was thinking as well. I was like, I was like, then again, we don't see him in the costume until like it's the last page of issue two. So like it's it's like oh well, you gotta get Spider-Man in the Spider-Man book, right? So it's like okay, right. I. I I can sympathize with it. It's not the worst offender I've seen of this, you know, like it's just exactly it's just one of those like tropes a- that I, I just notice so much now. And I've seen it so many times that like even if it fits aesthetically, I'm like, oh, we're doing the, the, the oh, well, we got to go back thing, you know, or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like if you have Hulk all over the cover of a Hulk book and then the first three issues are just Bruce Banner not doing any Hulk things, setting up the like, gamma bomb. This isn't the book I wanted. <laughs> so. You know, as as I said, we we cut back to three weeks ago and we meet Ben Urich, who is, you know, ace reporter and photographer for the Daily Bugle. He's going about the streets of New York City, basically just like surveying like the poverty as a result of the Great Depression, which is obviously like the backdrop of this time period and the backdrop of the story for the whole thing. Urich comes across an older woman standing on a literal soapbox and she's speaking to locals about how, like, you know, the government doesn't care about their plights unless they're making money. And uh, this is Aunt May, Aunt May Noir which is a funny thing to say. Her nephew Peter is there in the crowd supporting her, but uh, some ruffian like scoundrel guys start heckling Aunt May, calling her communist and telling her to go to Russia and stuff. And these are uh, the enforcers, um, everybody's favorite Spider-Man villains. <laughs> Fancy Dan, Montana, and Ox. Uh, they're just gangster guys who, you know, do extremely specific things. Uh, ironically, I think uh, this is <laughs> like the one story where their aesthetic is timely. So like their designs aren't really affected by like the noir theme or anything. They're just there. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> but yeah, like so Fancy Dan is kind of like the leader of the enforcers. Right. And he's he's giving Aunt May some shit. And Peter just like immediately starts yelling at him. Peter is like an angry young man with like a mouth. And uh, the enforcers start to rough him up and Aunt May, too. But then Ben Urich like snaps a photo of them. And Yurik tells Dan that they better stop unless they want to end up on the front page looking bad. And so the enforcers like leave him alone. And they're talking about like how, you know, uh, Ben, you know, he's uh, Yurik, he's he's untouchable for now or whatever. And uh, Ben gives May and Peter like a ride to their house where we get some context, like, you know, through their discussion. Uh, Peter says that the Goblins mob, there's a gangster named the Goblin, Norman mm-hmm. Osborne, is responsible for the murder of his uncle Ben, which happened not too long ago. Yurik says, you know, he's like, oh, I heard about that. You know, sorry for your loss. And May argues like she's like, we don't know what happened to Ben. You know, or who who harmed him or whatever. We but, know Aunt May. Yeah, yeah. We but, know. And Peter is very adamant that he knows. Uh, so <laughs> May goes up for the night and Yurik offers to take Peter out. Peter accepts and they go to the hottest speakeasy in town, the Black Cat. And uh, can you guess who's who's it run by, Lance? <laughs> It's a uh, Felicia Hardy. Felicia Hardy, that's right. Yeah. So, and uh, so you know, we meet Felicia Hardy, uh, and she appears to have had like you know a history with Ben Urich uh, because you know she tells the staff to immediately clear off his usual table for him, and it's not like a uh, like you know a, a threatening way, like oh Ben Urich, he's a big timer. It's like she's like 
clearly like, you know, like, oh, Ben, you know, yeah, like here, I'll, I'll have someone clean off your table. So, yeah, I don't know why I'm being coy about that. Actually, they they do have a history. <laughs> ben even Ben even tells Peter that Felicia's the only woman like he ever asked to marry him. But then something happened, you know, noir. But <laughs> but yeah, so so uh, there's also like a funny moment that I wanted to point out during their meeting interaction here where Ben orders a whiskey and he orders a soda for Peter. But Peter, Peter says he wants a whiskey too, which prompts Felicia to say, are you old enough to be drinking? To which Peter responds, tell you what, I'll show you my birth certificate and you show me your liquor license, which is a really funny it's moment. Yeah. A brilliant line. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, I had a lot of fun with that one. It's so good. Yeah. Every dialogue choice for Peter, I feel like in this book is like, it's so interesting because he's so, I don't want to say he's like super different than how we know him, but it's like, he's different enough that it's like, just like, oh yeah, I guess. Peter, if he went through this, would probably be like that or say something like that. You know, it's I don't know. He's he's cool. Like, I, I just like it's like a cool thought experiment. Yeah, he's he's more hardened at this point in his life versus being that stuck up um, like brain that he is early on in the actual Amazing Spider-Man series. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, I really like that. He's just like to use a stereotypical term for noir stories, but he's very like just hard boiled, like just like. No nonsense, you know, like it, it's yep. it's it's cool. Yeah. So, you know, the two of them, Ben and Peter, they sit down and Ben basically tells Peter that he thinks his Aunt May and him should kind of lay low and keep quiet. Peter's really stern on how, you know, they have strong morals. And Ben kind of dresses him down, basically saying that his notions are nice, but they're a fairy tale, you know. And uh, then it kind of turns into that scene from Batman Begins where like Ben is like, look around, you see, you know, this is reality. That's the mayor, the sheriff, the district attorney, and, and those ain't their wives now, see, you know, or whatever. And, uh, and, like, <laughs> and, and you're like, okay, everything is terrible. Everything is messed up. And, uh, it's then though that the, uh, the goblin Norman Osborn enters with his crew and Ben explains like, you know, basically that like the goblin is like a free agent who is utilized by city officials and, you know, the like to make sure that things go that the way they want. And, uh, it's kind of a shocking moment, actually, because they're at this point, like Peter straight up asks, like, are you saying that like the mayor hired the goblin to kill my uncle Ben? And Yurik is like, yeah, probably <laughs> like he just tells him like and it's like and he, he does the pun where he says it's all a tangled web, Peter. And, you know, you're like, get it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so Ben uh, breaks down. He did, he did all but just come out and just say spiders, Peter. Yeah, spiders, spiders, Peter, which we do get a moment like that later in the story, too, which is kind of funny. But yeah, it's like, but yeah, so Ben, like, you know, breaks down who the Osborne crew is. And he says in this universe, basically, they're all circus performers. Uh, the enforcers were he's got Craven, who is like an animal tamer, which is a good one to one for, right. for Craven. Yeah. Um, uh, and Adrian Toomes, the vulture. Um who used Yikes. to be a geek. Now, they explain this in the book, but yeah. Did you know <laughs> the definition of a geek beforehand? No. So, like, it, yeah, it's really disturbing. It's basically just someone, like, you know, not necessarily at a circus, but just, like, a person at, like, a freak show that bites the heads off chickens. And I, I won't even skirt around this. Like, the vulture is goddamn frightening in this book. Like, easily the most disturbing part. He's horrific. Yeah, he's, like, I've never seen, like... <laughs> a mainstream comic book character like this in the Marvel universe that I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Like, I, it's <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't know. It's just, it's messed up, man. But yeah, so Osborne, you know, he comes up to Ben and Peter's table and he recognizes Peter and says, uh, he's like, oh, your uncle. Yeah. Uh, ben, he was, he was an agitator. And uh, he then goes on to say that he heard about uncle Ben's demise, which he describes as being ripped apart by wild dogs. 
and you're like, Jesus Christ, like this just got way darker. Like it just gets darker every page. And you're like, yep. yeah, so Peter responds in a pretty great line. He says, my uncle was murdered by lowlife scum and you aren't fit to say his name. And he throws his drink on him and uh, Vulture like growls at Peter, but Osborne's like, not here. And uh, Yurik apologizes and Osborne tells him to teach his young friend some manners. And uh, the two step outside. And Yurik is like, what, what the hell, you know, <laughs> what the hell, Peter? And Peter says, like, he's like, I got the message, like you were trying to say in there, but you know, something in Peter just won't let him stand by idly while like bad stuff is going on. And something about that, like resonates with Ben. And I didn't mention up top too, but like for a lot of this story, we're actually in the inner monologue of Ben for like the first half. Um, and uh, so he's kind of like talking to us, the reader basically saying like, I don't know why I took him in, but I, but I did what I did, you know, and something about him and like uh Yurik, you know like i said see something in peter at this point takes him into the bugle uh where he meets j jonah jameson and jonah actually gives peter a job basically as Yurik's assistant uh the idea being um you know he can like learn a trade make some money for college and actually kind of like give him some purpose to make a difference in the world at least that's how it's framed to us like that jonah says um, but some time goes by and Pete kind of helps Yurik. He sees like, you know, the travesties in the city more up close and personal than ever. And the experience like just kind of galvanizes him more and strengthens like, you know, his his resolve. Like he's he's like, we got to right these wrongs and things like that. And after one particular night, they uncover like an obvious murder done by the goblin. And Peter opens up to Yurik about his Uncle Ben. And Peter reveals he was actually the one who found Uncle Ben's dead body. And, you know, there were like marks on his wrist showing that like he was tied up and beaten before they let the dogs loose on him. And uh, the issue then ends after Yurik drops Peter off at home. We see Yurik back at his place kind of and he's shooting heroin. And yeah. uh, and he has like this great inner monologue here where he says, um, I thought I'd had it bad, but I never went through half the pain and loss that's been thrown into that kid's life. The truth is, Peter has every reason to become bitter and twisted and cynical, every reason to give in and let the corruption eat his soul. The truth is. Some of us are strong, and some of us are so terribly weak. Peter was wrong about one thing. It wasn't dogs that tore Ben Parker to pieces. It wasn't dogs. And that is when it's revealed that the vulture cannibalized Uncle Ben's body, and Ben Urick was there when it happened. The vulture ate Uncle Ben. <laughs> he ate him. Yeah, straight up. And they practically show it <laughs> in the book, yeah, too. They, they show this angle where Ben is on the ground and his like, rib cage is like ripped open. You see ribs sticking out at the side, yeah. like a mangled face and tombs with his like two inch long razor sharp teeth coming down onto Ben it is horrific looking. And aside from honestly, aside from Michael Keaton's vulture in, in the Spider-Man movie, this is the best vulture that's ever existed. I, I do really like this use of the vulture, even though it is so like, ridiculously dark like you know like but but it it really works and he's really scary does. i've never like i've never been more affected by a vulture story <laughs> than i have with this one to be honest and it's not even like a vulture story you know i mean he's just a, a part in it you know but like yeah like he's just that this is like the one thing that like i really remembered like when you said you wanted to do this book like I was like, I was like, oh yeah, I remember really liking that. But my first image was like Adrian Toomes eating Uncle Ben. <laughs> I was like, oh Jesus! It's <laughs> like, yeah. like hope this it holds up. With you. Yeah. <laughs> like, but yeah. So uh, moving on, like a, a little bit of time passes. Yurik basically keeps Peter in the dark about you know being on the take, and there is a particular disagreement that they have when they develop some photos that clearly show. 
Fancy Dan, one of the enforcers, at the scene of an arson attack that ended up killing an innocent little girl. And uh, Peter, like, wants to take the evidence up to the police, but Ben is, like, so cynical and, and you know, again, he's on the take. He rebuts it by saying, you know, the corruption's everywhere, Peter. Like, there's no point in it. Nothing's going to happen if we take this in. And uh, Peter then gives, like... A pretty rousing little anecdote about how when his uncle Ben was a pilot in the Great War, he says uh, Ben's philosophy was, if those in power can't be trusted, it's the responsibility of the people to remove them. And later that night, Peter goes to Yurik's apartment to tell him that they made like the late edition and he finds Yurik passed out you know, with the heroin set up next to him. Yurik's phone rings and Peter answers. The person on the other end asks for, uh, <laughs> this is pretty on the nose, but he asks for who he calls the spider and yeah. says uh, the Goblin's goons are going to pick up like a museum shipment of antiques late that night. And that was like a tip line. So this is actually where we finally get the introduction to some uh, spider powers in this Spider-Man book. Basically, the enforcers are taking this shipment of weird like cursed antiques, basically because Osborne likes antiques. <laughs> it's like, I mean, sure, you know, but like uh, but they accidentally drop a box. It breaks a statue open which unleashes a bunch of spiders, which proceed to straight up eat Fancy Dan. Mm-hmm. Like they yep. just devour him. <laughs> it's, it's like the scarabs from the mummy. Yeah, yeah. And like, it, it's just like, whoa, okay. <laughs> like, you know, we're doing cursed spiders or whatever. And like, uh, Peter's watching, like he's he showed up, but you know, he's like in the rafters, like keeping quiet. And uh, one of the spiders crawls up, bites him, and he has this vision of a crazy spider god that tells him, why do you tremble, little man? My bite brings death only to those of evil intent. I will bestow on you a greater torment, the curse of power. So when I really, this happens so fast, by the way, like in the issue, Very it's fast. like, it's so when, when I really think about this, it's weird, right? I mean, like, I, I appreciate that it's different. I'd rather have them do something different than just the same thing that we know, but you know, in this time period or whatever, it's supposed to be, you know, a reinterpretation. But this sequence kind of sticks out like a sore thumb to me in the story. Like, although I will say when I read it, like at this point, maybe it's because, you know, we're, it's four issues and we're in the second issue and my brain just kind of goes, yeah, cool. Let's get him some spider powers now. Right. Like, (laughs) I think that it feels so out of place because the rest of the story is so very grounded, which is what noir storylines tend to be. It's, it's very uh, like on the beat, and everything is like there's just guns and more guns <laughs> kind of flying all over the place in these storylines. But now you add this kind of mystical type situation because it, it, it was like a statue slash mask that broke. Yeah. And it had a curse to it. So you have this mysticism going on and that kind of is the outlier of the story, but it serves as like that quick catalyst to get us to the point where Peter does have these powers and now has the ability to go up against those individuals that before were way too advanced for him to deal with. Yeah. And, and I get it. Like, you know, it's kind of expediting what basically what we already know. I don't, I don't mind that, especially in stories like this, where it's like, it's a reinterpretation and like, they want to show us like the interesting things, you know, in the story basically. So like get past the stuff you kind of already know, but like, I kind of wondered too, if they were playing off of the idea that I think like Straczynski introduced in his run with like the spider God thing, mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. cause like Dan Slott would play with that later, like, you know, in, in different ways. And like, so I'm wondering if they're just like, ah, this is, this is common knowledge now. Like just, just throw the spider God in there, <laughs> you know, whatever it's fine. But yeah. So anyway, you know, Peter wakes up and I really liked this actually. He wakes up and he's in like a black cocoon. 
Mm-hmm. Like he's like he's like transformed inside this thing, which is like kind of cool. And uh, he's like above where Fancy Dan was. The other enforcers have left. He drops down and realizing, you know, he has enhanced strength and reflexes. And it's basically like, well, he's basically like, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go kick some ass now, you know. <laughs> and uh, we also see his spider sense for the first time here, which I really dig. It's like these uh, like blurred red lines that are in the shape of the spider god's face. Like, it's really mm-hmm. cool looking. Like, yeah, I don't know. it looks great. Yeah. Like, so Ben Urich actually at this point, we cut back to him. He wakes up, you know, from his his heroin sleep and uh, he kind of grows his spine and he goes to Osborne's office and he confronts him actually about the picture of Fancy Dan, like with the arson thing and says uh, he's going to run this story. And Osborne, like, you know, is very casual. He's he's not threatened. And he tells Ben he'll buy his picture. But he's like, but watch yourself. You know, my patience only goes so far. It's also made clear here that Osborne is where Ben gets his heroin or at least where he gets the money for his heroin. Cause he knows about like his addiction. So he's like, he's using that against him. And, uh, it's here that Peter garbed up in a proto costume, like swings through the window and he grabs Ar- Osborne and is like, you stop all this now. And Osborne like just kind of laughs it off, tells his goons to shoot Peter. But before they can, Peter notices the picture of fancy Dan and realizes that Ben was there. And, uh, he runs outside, he stops Ben and, uh, basically just like chastises him for being bought by Osborne. Like he feels betrayed, you know, as, as he should. Yep. And, uh, Ben is immediately like Peter, like he knows it's him cause he's like chastising him. And, uh, but Peter, you know, runs off disgusted by Ben at this point. And, uh, the goblin goons like show up and they, they shoot at Peter, but you know, he gets away and Ben has this, uh, actually a, a great moment where he throws the money that Osborne paid him saying like, I don't work for you anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Osborne, you know, now sees, Yurik as a man with nothing to lose, which is obviously very dangerous for a business like his. So back at Ben's apartment, uh, he pours himself a drink and he calls up Jonah and he tells Jonah like he's going to give him the goblin. He's got names, dates, pictures. You know, he's got it all. And Jonah tells him to stay inside because he's like, you don't want to be on the street with that info. Like, I'll come to you, you know, whatever. And uh, we then end the issue with uh, two juxtaposed scenes. And uh, one is where Ben answers his door and he's shot to death. And the other is of Peter making his official costume, which is made from Uncle Ben's service uniform. He also grabs Ben's gun, and uh, it's then revealed that it's Jonah who shot and killed Yurik, while Peter stands on a snowy rooftop and proclaims, say your prayers, goblin, here comes the Spider-Man. So two things. You had mentioned to me, and mentioned just a little bit ago, uh, how much you like the idea that Pete makes his costume out of Ben's uniform. I was wondering if you got any specific thoughts on that. Yeah, it... So Uncle Ben always served as this moral compass for Peter. He was the one that instilled in him this desire to do good, along with Aunt May. But the idea of when you think I'm I'm going to be this hero now, I, I want to do good and take down these evildoers. His first thought is, I'm going to make a uniform out of the person that I respect the most and also do a service to others. So you have the service to the country and then service to his neighborhood using that same uniform, but done differently. And then also taking Uncle Ben's gun to to go up against these these crime lords, essentially. And to me, that that parallel of of doing service for others works perfectly in this situation. I agree. Yeah, it's it's got like a it's it's so subtle the way that they put it in, because it's not like there's like a a whole lot of attention driven to it. Like it's just kind of like a fact we see on the page, but there is like a lot of um, sentiment and kind of just like 
backstory you can kind of infer about this version of Uncle Ben and how he affected Peter. And um, yeah, it's just a yeah, it's like once you hear it, it's it's again kind of like just seeing the design. You're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's like perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's a yeah, I agree. It, it just really works. And second, I wanted to ask, how did you feel at this point reading it about the reveal of Jonah being on the take? I was surprised because in so many storylines, you always have Jonah being this just jerk all the time, but he always has like a strong sense of morality. And at this point in the storyline, you you think that that morality has just been thrown out the window and he's just on the take as well. Yeah. So it, it, it was a surprise for me yeah. uh, and it, it like threw me for a minute. But uh, it works very well. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's like when I was rereading this, I didn't actually remember like the twist, you know, (laughs) and like so I was like, oh, I don't like that. (laughs) Like I was like, you know, I was like, that just makes me feel uncomfortable, but in like an engaged way, you know, but kind of like the vulture, I guess. But (laughs) but yeah. So. All right. Well, here we go. It's on. Stuff starts popping off here. Um, So Peter finds Ben Urick dead. In a very emotional scene where uh, yeah, it's it's really actually it's pretty gut wrenching here because he keeps thinking to himself, not again, not again, you know, <laughs> and you're like, oh, man, that's rough. He's like, I lost another Ben, another Ben. It's like anybody named Ben. Don't come near Peter, you know. But yeah, like the uh, the cops come, you know, and they're like, go home, kid, like just covering it up because further fueling the vendetta Peter has against the goblin, basically. And uh, Jonah reports to Osborne. But Osborne is pissed because he didn't find a lot of info that Yurik must have. Like he he ransacked the apartment, you know, and uh, this leads Norman to want to hunt down people close to Ben because he's like, there has to be something else. And so we catch up with Peter, who obviously got all the evidence that Ben had on the goblin. uh, And he goes to the black cat and Felicia is like, you know, distraught. And uh, she kind of blames him for Ben's death, saying that Peter galvanized Ben to step out of line, basically. And uh she also tells him, like, if you know what's good for you, like, don't share that info with anybody. Not Jonah, not anybody. And uh, Pete, you know, he goes to Ben's funeral where Jonah is <laughs> in a in a not so sly way, asks if Ben left him anything. And Peter, like, just kind of denies it and goes about his way, taking Felicia's advice. We then get like a montage, basically, of Peter as Spider-Man just wrecking Osborne's operations, like <laughs> like so much so that it's shown some of the city officials are threatening Osborne's business. They're like, hey, if you can't do your job, we'll find somebody else to do it, basically. And uh, this is where we start to see the classic, too. Um, uh, we get some headlines from the Daily Bugle that are, you know, now that we know that it's kind of a mob paper in this universe, or assumedly a mob paper, they're they're just trash-talking Spider-Man like he's a menace, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, Spider-Man, like, you know, is shown on top of, like, a building, and he's reading, like, the newest smear headline from the Daily Bugle. I like this because this version of Peter, like, as we've come to know him, would totally do this. But, like, he's just like, I'm going to go, like talk shit on Jameson to his face or whatever, you know, <laughs> like it's so, so, uh, this is where we get caught up with the beginning. Pete finds Jonah shot, but he's, he's still alive. And, uh, he asked Jonah if the goblin did this to him. And Jonah says, he's the master of disguise. You won't believe your, and then he passes away. And, uh, this is where we, you know, the cops show up, Spider-Man gets away. He then frustratingly looks through Yurik's files for like any leads and he finds one and he goes to the morgue where Jonah's body is and he touches his face and it morphs to his hand like it like smears. And because this is the chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> like, which is a great reveal. I, I really love, love that use of chameleon. <laughs> yeah. like it's, a, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's that's good stuff. And like 
But now, you know, the question becomes like, well, what happened to like the real Jonah? And it's shown that he's being kept in a cell by Osborne. Um, we also see him bring Felicia into captivity. And the third issue ends with Aunt May looking for Peter in their house. She like comes up to see where he is. And uh, the vulture is waiting on a ceiling beam above her, which is like a very creepy image. Like <laughs> it's like a, like just straight up horror movie. It's brutal. It's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Aunt May just consistently getting attacked by <laughs> Spider-Man villains. Oh, dude, yeah. She gets it pretty bad in this one, too. It's like it is so, you know, picking right up with the last issue. Vulture just attacks May and, you know, he's gross and terrible. And uh, Peter, like, shows up just in time and he tells Vulture to let her go. And Vulture asks, uh, he's like, are you fast enough to save her before I snap her neck? And Spider-Man says, no, probably not. And straight up shoots Vulture, murdering him. Yep. And like Aunt May, who doesn't know that this is Peter, just rails into Spider-Man. She's like just chastising him for thinking like you know he's above the law and this is a, a very like this is basically the emotional crux of the book like in a way this is this is basically his great power great responsibility moment like because yep. she's just like you we can't do that like you can't do that and the papers are right about you like you know it's like and peter just like he can't say anything and he just apologizes and he goes off and he uh ends up at the meat packing district where basically because some of Yurik's notes had mentioned that Osborne had a place in the meatpacking district referred to as the torture house. And uh, this is where Osborne has Jonah and Felicia. We do get some background here as well, where Jonah's revealed, you know, the real Jonah is revealed to be uh, basically like the the guy who has like the moral integrity that we've always known. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, oh yeah, like, you know, he's he's normal Jonah. He's just, you know, been replaced. So Osborne says that uh, Felicia has to pay for killing the chameleon as it's revealed that it was her who shot Jonah or, you know, the fake Jonah. There's a point where, like, you know, he goes to take her away and she scratches his face and it makes a crack in his skin in, like, a very strange way. And Norman, pissed off, goes to feed her to the spiders, which I guess he somehow contained in a big glass box. Yeah, that's not really ever explained. <laughs> yeah, they just... <laughs> yeah, they just, Apparently, Ox and Montana were, even though they're, like, goofballs the whole book, like, figured out how to do that, I guess. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but Spider-Man at this point swoops in before they could do that and man do we get a lot of cool fights here like there's a point where like craven is trying to shoot him and spider-man throws craven's like pet monkey in the way of the bullet yeah. like <laughs> like just killing the monkey as like a, a shield and like craven gets pissed and, and he uh he releases a tiger in jameson's cell and then spider-man fights the tiger I mean, that's that's all we have to say to that. Right. Like, what's cooler than that? I don't know. Like, he fights a tiger. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. It's yeah. ridiculous, but fun. It's yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, so, you know, but he, he saves Jonah and uh, Osborne takes Felicia into the sewers to escape. Spider-Man kicks Craven into the glass case of spiders and they begin to devour him. Spider-Man then goes down. He confronts Osborne in the sewer and they have like just this like dirty knockdown fight. Like at, at one point. Peter pulls or punches at his face and it's revealed that it's like a mask and he's a weird goblin man. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so he, he was part of the freak show that they were talking about the entire time, which ties he, it all together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know if they like if he was called, well, he probably was just called the goblin yeah. at the freak show, but 
visually he kind of looks more like the lizard like the like the original way the lizard looked where it looked more humanoid just with the yeah with like the green scaly face yeah because he's got like flat nose and stuff like that like it's not mm-hmm. like you know the the big like giant jaw and everything like right. it's like yeah no but yeah that, that hints why you know all of him and his gang are carnies you know i mean he was the the scary reptile man i guess <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. i mean all i really have to say about that is because I don't really mind the reveal. I know a lot of people are weird about that because like, you know, sort of like in the ultimate universe, it's like Osborne literally transforms into a, a giant goblin man. And I know people yeah. are, you know, iffy about that, <laughs> you know, but uh, I, all I have to say about this is like, I think it works and I like it. But, you know, if you have the ability to wear, like make yourself a convincing human costume, I don't know why you'd pick to have the infamously dumb looking Osborne hair. <laughs> the weird little things like, you know, it's like if everybody right. knows what I'm talking about, like just just Google a picture of Norman Osborn from any era. And it's just like him and Harry just have the the weirdest, most unrealistic dumb hair like you've ever seen drawn on a person. But yeah, it's like, <laughs> but yeah, so I hope they, they never try and bring that look to live action because it be, would be a debacle. <laughs> they like bring him into the MCU like and they're just like, they're just like, no, we're going we're going true with this. You know, <laughs> he's going to have this weird, stupid hair. But yeah, like, oh, man, that would be. I don't I don't think you could pull that off in any in any way. No, <laughs> like it, 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 it looks like it looks like cornrows with like red highlights. Yeah. Like it's like it's like but like sideways cornrows. Yeah. Like, like horizontal cornrows with red highlights. It doesn't make any sense at yeah, all. Clearly naturally grown. <laughs> yeah. So basically at this point, Peter and the Goblin fight and Peter gets the better of Osborne and uh, Osborne's like, you got to kill me if you want to finish this. I'll never stop. And Peter, though, having learned, like, you know, a lesson with the vulture, refuses and says that, you know, Osborne is going to face actual justice. And Osborne, at this point, actually tries to just, like, run away. But he's confronted by the horde of spiders who are using Craven's half-digested body to move around. And uh, they attack Norman. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty messed up, guys. Uh, no, no, so Norman's dead. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That was weird. <laughs> yeah, we get to see it, it looks like Spider's Man. It does. Yeah, yeah. I I almost thought that that was going to be like their version of Venom. Mm. Like like yeah. a symbiote just like taking over a body or something, but like oh they just they just use Craven's body for some reason. Maybe they just weren't done eating him and they they grab Norman and uh yeah, they I turn mean, him into a meat puppet. Yeah. He's and he's he's gone. <laughs> so uh at this point, we uh we cut to 2 months later. And Peter goes to visit Felicia at the Black Cat and he asks her, uh, he's like kind of confused because through the whole story, like in the context of like their discussions, like it's hinted that, you know, obviously we knew that Ben and Felicia had some kind of relationship and then something happened. It's made relevant as well that her and Norman Osborne, the Goblin, were together at some point. So Peter just asks her if she left Ben for the Goblin. And I really like her response because she just says, what happened between me and Norman Osborn, it's a long and complicated story and it's none of your business. And I'm like, fair enough, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it's right. uh, yeah, but it, Peter, you know, seems to understand. And uh, he gives her a picture that he found with Ben's stuff, which is a picture of him and Felicia together. And they, they look happy. You know, it's seems to be before he, you know, got hooked on heroin and things like that. And, you know, it's a nice little thing. But then our uh, epilogue page has a great inner monologue from Peter which I'll just read for the effect, but he says, The long cold winter has finally ended. The goblin and his cronies are dead or in custody. Roosevelt is in the White House, and J. Jonah Jameson is once more sounding the clarion call for liberty and equality from every new stand in the city. It looks like nothing but good times ahead. Even so, Aunt May is still in her soapbox, still fighting for the rights of the common people. 
She knows there are still plenty of bad guys out there. The monsters are always with us. But that's okay, because there will always be good guys too. And in the end, when all said and done, good guys always win. And that's the end of uh, Spider-Man Noir. I, oh, so good. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great little end. I love too how um during that like epilogue page, you know, we're seeing images of what he's talking about, and uh, I like when he says um the line about there being monsters out there, and we see a headline about um basically Hitler rising, getting the armies ready and whatnot. And I'm just like, it made me think for a second. I'm just like, oh, is the sequel, dude, is Spider-Man going to fight the Nazis? <laughs> I'm like, you know, that'd be cool. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, but yeah, that's, there, that's not what happens was, in the sequel, but still. Yeah, there was, there was another headline that shows uh, Dr. Otto Octavius is about to like go do a deep sea dive. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of cool little setup and mixed in with like, you know, the real world stuff and uh, just cementing it in the time. And uh, yeah, I guess we could, we could just jump into some, some overall thoughts here. Um, I just want to say like right off the bat, personally, I'm not what I would call like a big noir fan. I think it's like a cool aesthetic, but it, I think it's more just because it's not like a genre I'm super well versed in you know <laughs> like it's like i i like it when i see elements of it but like i've never like just sat down and had a noir marathon or whatever you know so like yeah but but even with that being the case this book like works so well that like i genuinely think it's one of the best alternate universe marvel stories like ever published like it just works on every level and like how, how do you feel about it i had so much fun reading this story it it exceeded the expectations i had having been wanting to read it for years really at this point and just never taking the time to to do so because it's been out of my reach so finally just bit the bullet and did it digitally but it i had so much fun just going through the story the visuals were great i loved the choices they made stylistically and narratively the the use of uncle ben's suit it will forever just be like a chef's kiss moment reading this story really yeah. and i i like i liked the way they took the goblin and his cronies being part of the freak show and it, everything fit so perfectly well within a noir setup that it it feels like this this character could have originated as a noir character rather than it being oh they just took the character and threw him in the setting it it felt so uh, like genuine and and uh, what's the word I'm looking I can't think of the word at the moment but it just like felt very natural for yeah. this for Spider Man to be in a noir sweat a noir setting yeah no I totally agree and like you know the. <laughs> Not to not to talk down on the on the other books that they did, but the other books very much feel more along the lines of what you were saying of like, it feels like they just took it and were like, yeah, like put it through a noir filter, you know, like it's like this one was the first book and you can tell that Hein and uh, Sapolsky had a pitch like they wanted to do this because they were inspired to do it. And then Marvel was like, oh, well, we, we could do a whole thing with that. And then they were like, and, you know, some of those books are good. Like, I mean, hell, Scott Snyder wrote the Iron Man one, <laughs> but, oh, wow. which, yeah. which is very interesting. And I like the X-Men one as well. That one's written by Fred Van Linty. And like, you know, there, there's some great creative teams and some really cool ideas, but they definitely don't feel as uh, as authentic, I guess, as this one does. Like, and, and even the sequel to this one is kind of in the same vein. Like it's, um, you could tell, like, it's just so ingrained in like this idea of like, this is what this is. And, uh, and you know, it's this 
it's this well-rounded idea. The other ones are just kind of like, yeah, you know, like what if Iron Man was more like the Rocketeer or whatever, you know, <laughs> and like, and it's like, yeah. it's like, that can be interesting and cool. Not saying those stories are bad in any way, but like, yeah, there's just something to this one that like, you just feel the inspiration that the, that the creative team had for it, that like, it just, it just adds that extra punch. It, it truly like makes it like a timeless read, like, you know, at this point, I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, it's a real special book, but, um, so uh, going to a bit more specifics here, uh, how'd you feel about like the writing, like with the exception of like the spider God insert, I think it's pretty much tonally perfect. Agreed. You know, yeah. yeah. It's the only outlier is the spider God part, but it's so quick that you kind of like, Oh, that's a thing. And then it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, okay, yeah, we got Spider-Man now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, what about DG and Domenico's art? I think it fit perfectly with with this noir style. It it flowed really well. I was a big fan of when uh, Peter is Spider Man and he's dodging like the bullets. The way they showed him moving quickly looked very very cool. It yeah. was very well done. Yeah, I I know I pointed it out earlier too, but that that new indicator of Spider Sense is great. Like that yep. weird red blurred lines, like it's just, it's, it fits the tone really well too. Like, even though that is more a part of like that, that mystical kind of rando thing that they throw in there, like it's, mm-hmm. uh, it fits really well. Like, you know, it's just like, oh, cool. It's like dark and weird and like just out there. I don't know. I, and the thing is too, is with the, with DGM and DG and Domenico, um, I haven't seen a lot of their other work or maybe I just haven't picked up a lot of the books, but like rereading this, I'm like, I'm like, man. I gotta find more stuff that they did. <laughs> I'm like, I really dig it. But yeah, I, I mentioned it a little bit up top as well, but I love how gung-ho Peter is. Like, it really feels like a true exploration of like, what if you put this person with this personality in this time, in this place, how would they be different? Like, how would they act? You know, it's, it, yeah, I don't know. It's just, there's there's so much of it that works. And like, obviously the core of it is Peter's character. And for how different he is, you totally understand and you still like instantly relate to him like you do those classic Spider-Man stories, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. I also like the fact that they didn't try and like shoehorn a romantic story with a Mary Jane character here. It, It was just solely about just Peter trying to do what is right and not including any other, like not that Mary Jane's a distraction, but anything that takes away from this overall narrative, it it is specifically about his goal to fix this neighborhood. And it's, it is like blinders on, even if they had thrown in Mary Jane, like off to the side and Peter just completely ignores her would have been fitting for the way this Peter was at this point in his life. Yeah. I mean, like he's, he's pretty much like only about the mission at this point and it totally works. Like, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, there's just, yeah, <laughs> it just kind of works on every level. Like the more you break it down, it's, it's one of those books that like, if you, if you try to find a chink in the armor, it just kind of strengthens it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like there's nothing that I would really change or, or want to be different than it. And it's just, uh, which is so funny because, you know, up until this point that they did this, this isn't anything that I think anyone would have thought like, oh yeah, that's an obvious idea or I want this, you know, it's just a truly like cool original concept for doing something like this. Yeah. It'll be one of those things that I continuously hunt for out in the <laughs> wild that use bookstores, hoping that someone will drop one off and I can get one for a reasonable price. Yes. <laughs> Not or a reprint. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Marvel. Jeez. <laughs> Throw us a reprint. Maybe with the new Spider-Verse movie coming out. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Who knows? I don't even know. I 
I mean, I, I've I've only seen like the teaser trailer, but I wonder if Nick Cage is coming back to reprise yeah. that role. I would hope so. He was he he was pretty great in the first one. So, <laughs> but yeah. So yeah. Man, anything else that we were chomping at the bit to say about this one before I ask I you? We, I think we hit everything. Yeah. 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 It's kind of funny because it's like you know with a, a book that we both seemingly like you know like so much it's like there's not much to say other than just like yeah it's great you know <laughs> like i mean it's just like i could go into more specifics but like i don't even know i don't even know why i need to you know it's just a it's just a great read but <laughs> I, I think this will be one of my when people give me like what spider-man story should i read i definitely am going to be suggesting spider-man noir moving forward to because it's one of those where you don't need to worry about a bunch of continuity. You can just go in and read. Um, my go-to is usually Spider-Man Blue, but yeah. this is absolutely going to be up on that list now when I when I give Rex for Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's one of those like, um, and I've always been. I think I talked about this a little bit when uh, me and Chris did the episode on um, Gotham by Gaslight. You know, just the idea of like these iconic characters and that everyone kind of knows the basis of, you know, it's like, I don't think like if you know, if you've seen a Spider-Man movie or just know the gist about Spider-Man, you could read this without really having ever read any other comic ever, you know, and, and really enjoy it. And like, there's just something about like taking like, you know, these iconic characters like Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, whoever, and just putting them in like these situations. It's like, it translates so well. And like, it's stuff like this that like can really like, hook people if they're not like on board with like reading comics yet you know <laughs> like it's 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 truly just uh it's kind of a marvel thing or pun intended but you know it's kind of a <laughs> kind of a marvel thing where it's like just like oh like you know i don't need any of this like long-standing context but i can just get this like cool story and like and it's different than what i know it's like that it, it it feels like it checks all the boxes for people who are just looking to get into this stuff yeah a four issue limited series does a lot more for a new reader than knowing that they have to read a thousand <laughs> issues of a character. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I 100% agree. And like, but yeah, I mean, um, so all right. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious here, but um, I got to do the obligatory. So Lance, Spider-Man Noir, is that a pull or a drop? Well, obviously drop. No, of course. Yes. Pull. Like, <laughs> yes. keep it. like I want every single, like I want the single issues. I want the trade paperback. Like I want the hardcover. This, this story was incredible. Yeah. Great stuff. I think it's pretty obvious. I would pull it myself too, even though I already did. Cause I own it. So, but yeah, <laughs> I'm not jealous at all. Oh. <laughs> well, if I, if I die before you, I'll send, I'll, I'll have it in my will to send these, uh, these books to you. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, there you have it, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash none of my friends like comics. Uh, getting a lot of new stuff in the new year. It's going to be a lot of fun. Cool new stuff. You can follow the show on Twitter at no comic friends for updates or email the show at none of my friends like comics at gmail.com. And if you mark it okay to air, we'll read your email on the air. Tell your friends and family if uh, they might be interested to give us a listen. We're on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And Lance, uh, once again, where can they find you and Comic Book Keepers? Yeah, so you can find Comic Book Keepers on any of your podcast streaming platforms. On social media, we are at CBKCast. And if you're listening to this episode and you think, I really like Nick, but I don't know about this Lance guy, <laughs> and you want a, a, an episode of Comic Book Keepers, you can go check out our episode on Nova, which we did recently, which was a blast. It was, it was, yes. I had so much fun getting to ramble to you about a character. <laughs> Not a character that I really like. <laughs> I loved it. I, I love learning about new characters. So 
that that's the whole point of our show is to expand our knowledge of comic books and so to have someone like you come on that is like their favorite character is nova excites me because i know i'm gonna get an education on a character i otherwise wouldn't have known very much about yeah and hopefully my enthusiasm doesn't overshoot the actual results you know so but yeah. no, it's doing well the episode's doing really well <laughs> that's good <laughs> but yeah man no um uh, once again you know i can't recommend comic book poopers enough um lance you know you've uh, it's been a been a, a great friend to me in the comic book podcasting sphere and uh we'll be doing more stuff together i'm sure uh in the future you know and uh oh absolutely yeah i don't know what else i was gonna say oh yeah Important, uh, Lance mentioned up, up top as well, but comic book keepers, three words, comic book. That's a, a, a war I'm waging against people who uh, use it as one word, even though it's it's not that serious, but still <laughs> just important <laughs> to remember. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, thanks again for listening, everybody. And uh, we will see you on the next page. Thanks again, Lance. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm.